Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. It's always sad this close to the holidays. You see a few singles come in. This guy told me he was waiting for a date, but who would make a date for Christmas Eve? He just sat there looking at his phone. Honestly, I think he just didn't want to be alone. This program features the work of 2023 writer Sumu Tasib. In the first half, you'll hear their conversation with curator Priscilla Long, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Could you start by describing your Jack Straw project? Um, you know, I'd always been like telling and retelling stories from my life. It's just something I've been curating and collecting stories of things that happened to me. And I love telling those stories. And I love retelling those stories. And um, initially, a lot of the writing I was doing, I remember one piece I wrote during undergrad that was, uh, it was called The Dawn Story about this person uh, named Dawn and this this, uh, this this very strange date that we had. Um, and, and I just put it up on my web page, you know, and and, uh, and and I remember a friend of mine uh, complaining to me that that the story was so compelling that uh, it made him like not have enough time to study for the test he was supposed to be studying for. <laughs> and it, it was a weird backhanded sort of compliment, but I was like, that's oh, a great compliment. Oh, that's interesting, <laughs> you know, and and um, so a lot of it initially was, I mean, in some sense, like, you know, my sister and I making those, you know, those tales with our yeah. stuffed animals, that was that was sort of writing fiction. Um, and, and there was a little bit in school of like, you know, writing, uh, writing fiction, but like, but I think my, my path to writing, um, about, you know, news stories that hadn't happened, stories out of the imagination, you know, a lot of that came from writing about things that did happen, but, but kind of noticing how by telling and retelling these stories, I was editing them and forming them into something in order to drive a particular point, you know. Mm-hmm. And that actually was a really important part of my scientific uh, you know, education too. And because like, you know, I, I quickly, and so before I was really writing a lot of, of even stories that had happened, I was writing, uh, you know, like papers, scientific papers. And I very quickly saw that uh, so much about scientific writing is, is about storytelling. Uh. Like, you know, there's, you know, they can have a theory, but like, but no one's going to remember or pay attention to the theory unless there's a good story behind it. Like mm-hmm. you absolutely need the evidence to show that it's true, but no one's even going to listen until you can construct the story and the narrative about why is this important? What is this? What's really happening? How do these things fit together? Mm. Um, and, and so, so those kind of things, they, they, you know, they kind of like grew together in one sense and, and, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of the organizing principle for this that, set of stories. That's great. I can't wait to read them all. <laughs> Thank you. So let's see, what were your earliest influences, aside from your parents? I mean, out, when you're out in the world there, college, high school, college, what kind of influences? Yeah, I had to think about this one for a while, and um, um, especially 
when thinking about making stories, I think one of the first things was my sister and I, we had a we had a long running uh, epic story that we told with our stuffed animals. And the stuffed animals were escaping from an orphanage and they were looking for new homes. And this was a years long saga. And like every time we'd have some playtime, we would make up new adventures and then like individual stuffed animals would go off and have a sub adventure and they'd come back to the main story. And we just continued with it. And so that was kind of the first kind of story making, storytelling experience that I had. Um, I, I also remember I would make up these stories and I would tell them to other children. And then sometimes they would get frightened and, and then I would, I, I would be, you know, I would be chastised for, for frightening these other children. Um, there was, uh, I can't remember who gave it to me, but I, I remember at some Christmas I received a book of O. Henry stories and, uh, that was really formative. I mean, I think that those were the first short stories I'd really encountered. Like I'd read, you know, kids stories and then longer books, but I hadn't really encountered short stories of form and I just re- absolutely loved it. Um, even though I quickly began to realize how cliched some of, you know, O. Henry's stories have become at this point culturally. Um, uh, that, and then, I don't remember how I came across this also, but but Bernard Malamud's Man in, in the Drawer, like, that that somehow appeared in my life, and I was just like, wow, like, this is this is a really interesting form. Um, so, so that was kind of, you know, on, on sort of just what I was discovering myself. In terms of teachers... Uh, I had this teacher in 10th grade, John Forsman, um, who was really incredible. I mean, like I've always felt, like even then, I just felt he was an incredible influence in my life. And he, he, um, he had this concept of golden threads in writing. And he would talk about like, okay, you know, you, you, you write these things, but then like there are these golden threads, these ideas that come through. And then he's the first person who ever used the phrase an event of language. He's like, there are these events of language that happen. I'm like, oh, what's that? Sounds so exciting, you know? And he would take our papers and, you know, he would grade them, but he would also highlight, you know, these events of language and these golden threads. And, and um, I remember seeing that and just being like, wow, like nobody's ever called out like a sentence or a phrase and been like, there's something really special going on here. And that was very, it really, you know, kind of uh, got my attention. I'd not really thought about that before. And and I do remember, I was thinking about this recently, like I do remember at the end of the year, he sat me down and he was like, you're going to write a book someday. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right? fabulous. And and he's like, he's like, I don't know if it'll be a fiction book, but you're going to, I feel like you're going to write a book someday. And I was like, well, I'm not going to write, I'm going to do science or engineering or something. Yeah, the importance of an early teacher is yeah. really interesting. So John Forsman, and and the the funny thing was that you know I, I left that year more excited about writing and reading than I'd ever been. Like I remember, you know, we read books like If Beale Street Could Talk. Like we were reading a bunch of like really just I just love, and it was like wow, writing is fun. You know, like he's identifying things in my writing that that he really likes, and and I'm reading books that are really good. Like maybe there's some writing in my future, and then the next year was Honors American Literature. We dive straight into Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I was like, this is awful. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, oh, this is what 
what good writing is and I hate it. Oh. <laughs> and so like that that year, like it didn't completely undo um, everything from the previous year, but I was just like, you know, a lot of the books and this this particular teacher was very into just these very gothic writers, like uh, definitely a lot of Hawthorne. It's a lot of very dark, very gothic stuff. And I, I just was really, it, it felt like homework and not right. the, the joy of reading and writing was kind of gone for that year. Um, it's and, amazing how much influence a teacher will have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just I'm just like, I'm just glad it happened in that order. That <laughs> I had John Forsman first and then this other teacher. Um, and then in college, and, and again, I feel like this is really lucky that... Uh, that um, so Stephen Kramer, uh, who's a who's a who's a professor of the practice, like he's a well-published poet, um, was teaching at my school, and you know the class was built as a poetry workshop. I didn't even know what that meant going in. I just imagined like I don't know, like we're gonna write some poems, I guess. But you know, I'd never done workshopping. I'd never. First of all, I'd never even imagined that one edits a poem. Like it was like you write down the poem from the mind of you know just. <laughs> that's how it is. And, and all of a sudden, you know, like people were offering critiques and then and, and he was like, oh, this, you know, more of this and less of that. And he was so able to be so direct about his feedback without, you know, squelching passion. Like, like he would, he would look at my pieces and I remember like I'd write a lot of pieces. And at that time, it, you know, there's a lot of complicated and difficult personal stuff that I wanted to write about, mm-hmm. but I would obfuscate it in fancy language and metaphor, and, and it would really be poems about nothing. And then one time, because I was short on a deadline, and just kind of wrote down the real stuff, and, and, and I turned it in, and he was like, this is this is the real stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. And he's like, no, this is the real stuff. You uh-huh. have to do more of that. And and that that was really, that again, was another really eye-opening uh, moment. And he was actually a poetry editor at the Atlantic Monthly uh-huh. um, at what, the time. Was this at MIT? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, fabulous. So yeah, so, yeah, so he, he uh, invited me to his office once. Um, and I remember um, he has piles of, of these these chapbooks around him and I'm like what is all this and he's like oh these poets are just sending me their stuff all the time and I'm like and I'm like but 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 this is Allen Ginsberg and he's like yeah he's sending me his latest thing like you know do you want it here you can have it and so he gives me this this kind of like early stage like pre-press uh version of Cosmopolitan Greetings which was his last book before he died wow. and and it's still got like you know handwritten junk in it and like and he's, huh. he, he just gave. I mean, he didn't know that Alan Ginsberg was about to pass away, but um, it, it was, it was, you know, it was kind of like it, it was both intimidating and in that, like, wow, here are these amazing, you know, the 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 giants, you know, of, of poetry, and and they're just sitting on his desk, and he's just kind of passing them off to whoever's in his office, but but also that, like, wow, I mean, I'm close to, you know, all of the that real greatness. things, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and I, and I think that was another thing about being. Um, it was so different from from growing up in the Midwest that that uh, you know Boston's such a literary city, and and my favorite poets like Louise Gluck, you know, and and uh, Philip Levine and people like that, they were coming through like all the time. They would read a random bookstore down the street, and yeah. uh, there was just a Grolier's. constant yeah Grolier's mm-hmm. yeah Grolier's poetry bookstore <laughs> the, the yeah absolutely poetry yeah Grolier's and the Harvard bookstore were probably the most common yeah. ones. And it was just, it was incredible to just see them and just be surrounded by 
to be surrounded by those literary people and also to kind of, I, I think, kind of um, um, seeing literary artists especially um, being celebrated and held up in a way that I'd never really felt in my family or, or even at school, like, you know, because we didn't really encounter those people, like, you know, in, in the Midwest. And, and so suddenly I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, here are these people and they're like, treated as nobility, you know, here. And, and it was very, uh, it was kind of a really exciting model to kind of see that that, that kind of uh, culture existed. Now we'll hear a selection from Sumu's live reading. kind of fool makes a first date for Christmas Eve? Watts knew better. He knew he knew better, even when he made the date. December was the time of last-minute cancellations, with family and travel and gift shopping wreaking havoc on the schedules of lonely singles. By mid-December, the great flakeout had begun in earnest, and a day before Christmas, you couldn't even rely on the buses to run on time. <laughs> Still, the week after would have been worse. He looked at his watch again, eight minutes past seven. Not unreasonably late yet, but not a good sign. He had texted her from the bus at 6.45 to make sure the time still worked for her. She had said she'd arrived early, but then realized she'd left her ID at home. Entirely reasonable. Except that to minimize the chances for a no-show, he had suggested they choose a place close to where she lived. Always make it easy to say yes, he had thought to himself. But that meant she would have had plenty of time to go home and get back by now. Again, not a good sign. He looked out towards the windows facing the street, but all he could see was the dark December night and the vague reflection of his own ghost in the glass. Watts scrolled through her text messages from the last day to see what might have happened. Nothing too remarkable there, mostly just logistics on where and when to meet. Maybe a few too many emojis, though. Had he seemed overenthusiastic, he noticed that each of his texts ended with an exclamation mark, and sometimes two, while hers rarely ended with punctuation at all. Who had first suggested meeting in person? It was him. Who had suggested the date and time? Him again. Great. For a certain kind of person, avoiding the discomfort of saying no outweighed the guilt of standing up a stranger. But what kind of person would do that? Crap. This kind of person, apparently. Crap. That said, she was still within the window for plausible lateness. He had to wait until at least 7.15, or else he could end up being the asshole for not giving her enough time. Might as well make it an even 7.30. Watts looked around the bar. It was one of the new boutique cider places. Long, gleaming wooden tables under handcrafted light bulbs, stools fixed to swinging joints under the supports. No table service, just a register in front of a giant chalkboard with the available ciders and a long array of taps. He looked back at the bartender, a Seattle classic, perfectly manicured beard, a mustache with wax tips, and a vest of dark suiting material over a muted plaid shirt in blue and gray. The plaid felt like an homage to the neighborhood's working class past of rugged fisher folk, the facial hair and vest in alignment with the nouveau style of carefully curated masculinity. <laughs> Bearded vest had been pleasant enough when he rang him up. As he handed back his card, Watts couldn't help but notice the dark metal band on his finger. 
must be nice this time of year going home to a warm embrace, recounting the stories of the day, Watts muttered to himself. He imagined what story Bearded Vest might recount about him. It's always sad this close to the holidays. You see a few singles come in. This guy told me he was waiting for a date, but who would make a date for Christmas Eve? He just sat there looking at his phone. Honestly, I think he just didn't want to be alone. His lover would put their arms around him, glad they had found someone so sensitive, yet so exquisitely groomed. <laughs> putting, their, putting their fingers into Bearded Vest's large, but surprisingly soft, hands, they would lead him to the warmth of their marital bed. He looked at his watch again, half past seven. Clearly, she was standing him up. But what about her text? Why would she bother saying she was here and then going back for her ID? Why not just leave the text unanswered? He looked through the messages that exchanged on the app before switching to text. Yes, there was some solid flirting there in both directions, and she had seemed genuinely interested. What if she had planned to return, but something happened on the way there or back? Maybe a family emergency of some kind, but then she would at least have texted. But what if she couldn't text because she was the one with an emergency? Think about it. The streets were desolate, and there were still some industrial areas in this neighborhood with sinister figures lurking in the shadows. What if she had taken a shortcut to rush back to the bar and then been assaulted, knocked to the cold ground while the villains took her wallet, or worse? Shit, shit, shit. Should he go out and look for her? But he had no idea where she lived. Should he call for help? But he didn't even know her full name, just her phone number. It would probably be possible to get her identity from a phone number, but not without the police. He could call the police, but what would he tell them? Hey, this person I met online didn't show up for my date, and uh, I'm worried something horrible has happened to her, so could you please go look for her? <laughs> they wouldn't even take a missing person report until she'd been gone for 24 hours, and even then, the story would sound ridiculous. The thought of the police laughing at him began to calm him down. But what if she really is missing? Watts fretted, his fear is rekindling. The first thing they'd do would be to check her phone records to see who the last person she communicated with was me. I've been in this bar the whole time, but how would they know that? My phone location data, that would probably clear me. But I've heard phone location data isn't that precise. So if she was attacked somewhere nearby, they might still think it was me. Crap, who could testify I was here the whole time? Bearded vest. But would he remember me? Probably not. He sees hundreds of people every day. I need to do something to make myself memorable. May maybe I can ask him to take a selfie with me. The picture alone won't prove anything, but the awkwardness of the moment would make him remember my face and then connect it to my being here the whole night. Jesus, this is going to be embarrassing, but I guess it's what I need to do. Watts sighed, turned to look at the unsuspecting bartender, and felt his heart rate rise rapidly as he got up to approach him. Watts? A small voice asked from the other side of the table. He turned back to see a smiling, oval face the color of sand, surrounded by the fur fringe of an enormous puffer jacket. Kalina, he said, almost shouting in surprise. Oh, you must be so mad, she said, turning her body to make a quick escape, but with her eyes still locked onto his. No, no, don't go. I'm not mad at all. I'm just relieved. What happened? Watts made a rapid inventory of her features. Dark, narrow eyes extended into wings, a septum ring, a slender frame constantly in motion. Oh, it was Edgar, my hedgehog. Kalina looked down, but raised her eyes again to smile at him. Your hedgehog? Watts asked in genuine surprise. He's kind of a little shit, actually. She smiled briefly and turned her body away and back. When I got home, I saw his water was empty, and when I opened his cage to take it out and fill it, he made a break for it. Once he's hidden away, he's almost impossible to find, and so stupid he'll starve before giving up his little game. 
I had to keep eyes on him as I chased him around my apartment, and it took this long just to coax him back into his little house. Now that, Watts laughed, is not what I was expecting. <laughs> well, you said you were relieved, not angry. That's not what I was expecting either. Tell me, Watts, what were you relieved about? Did you think I was going to stand you up? No. Well, yes, actually, at first, but then I was worried something dreadful had happened to you. Something dreadful? How dark and exciting, she said, <laughs> straddling the stool in front of him and swinging it closer as she pushed back the hood of her jacket. She put her elbows on the table, rested her face in her upturned hands, and smiled up at him, fluttering her eyes. Do tell. I love a good true crime story. <laughs> Watts went through the entire progression of his thoughts, leaving no detail unturned. He had a vague sense that he might be oversharing, but she seemed to be entranced by his words. When he got to the selfie with the bartender, she laughed out loud, covering her mouth with one hand while reaching out to stroke his arm. A selfie with bearded vest? Oh, my poor dear. You must have been truly desperate. But now I kind of want you to take that selfie anyway, she said with a giggle. That's quite an imagination you have, mister. It's just my damned anxiety, Watts said, laughing as well, beginning to wonder if this adorable creature might actually be finding him interesting. My therapist calls it catastrophizing. Once my brain starts going, it's really hard for me to stop. How interesting, she said, squinting off to the side and pausing for a long moment. So much detail, the bartender's spouse, the police scanning my phone records. What if, Watts squirmed. Maybe she found him interesting, as in interesting mental patient, not interesting person I would want to date. Unable to hold the silence, he blurted out, what if what? Oh, she laughed. What if anxiety is your superpower? Wait, what? He said, genuinely mystified. Well, it's your anxiety that led you to have all these worries, right? Which turned into this incredibly rich story. What if the same part of your brain that makes you worry so much is the part that's able to weave those tales? Interesting, he said, pausing to look off to the side. I've never thought about it that way. I suppose you can't really worry if you can't come up with all the terrible things that might happen, right? Right, she said, smiling up at him. Have you ever thought about writing them down? My worries? Yes, well, maybe not all your worries, but at least the ones that turn into stories. Because maybe, Kalina said, shimmying her shoulders towards him in a tiny dance, some of those stories will be about me. Maybe, he said, sharing in her smile. Preferably ones where I'm not getting hacked to bits by some ne'er-do-well. They both laughed. They spent the next hour talking, smiling, teasing, joking. At nine, Bearded Vest came over to tell them the bar was closing early for the holiday. They walked outside together, their breaths merging into a private fog in the still December air. Now, I really do want to see you again, and I want to hear more of your stories, she said. And I'm going to text you as soon as I get home so you'll know I haven't been the victim of a horrible murder. <laughs> I would like that, Watts said, laughing. Wait, you would like a text or to see me again, she pouted. Both, he said, holding his arms out in an invitation. She jumped into him, holding him tightly until her puffer jacket had deflated against his body. Giggling, she spun around to walk briskly away, turning back once to smile and wave. A good sign. He headed towards the corner, seeing the bus pull up just in front of him. Another good sign. He boarded and found a pair of seats to himself. Pulling out his phone, he thought back to the beginning of the night, retracing his steps as he entered the bar and began to write. What kind of fool makes a first date for Christmas Eve?
Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Ayesha Ubiadelica, and Steve DeTori. Our theme music is by Brian Smith, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2023 curator of this program is Priscilla Long, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, Washington State Arts Commission, the U District Partnership, National Endowment for the Arts, Rainier Institute and Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org.